The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to In Veritate on member-supported Restoration Radio. My name is Matthew Arthur, I am your host, and on this episode I am presenting sermons by Bishop Donald Sanborn. We are pleased to present In Veritate, free of charge to our listeners by the gracious sponsorship of Most Holy Trinity Seminary. And now, on the subjects of humility and savagery, we present In Veritate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. St. Jerome said, There is nothing more excellent nothing more desirable than humility, for it is the chief preserver and guardian of all virtues. St. Gregory compared humility to the root of a flower. It is the root which provides all of the life of the flower. When the flower is plucked from the root, it quickly withers. The root lies in the ground and has no beauty or fragrance, but it is nevertheless the principle of the plant's life and nourishment. St. Augustine says that all virtues which are not rooted in humility are not true virtues, but virtues only in appearance. For those who are prideful practice virtue only for worldly esteem. God rewards such virtues, fake as they are, only with the good things of this world, which are good only in appearance, inasmuch as they are merely created images of the eternal good. And so we see that the evil people in this life do some good, and they are rewarded in this life with worldly goods. St. Margaret Mary Alacoque set down these rules for herself. I will consider all those who afflict or speak ill of me as my best friends and will endeavor to do them all the service and all the good that lies in my power. I will endeavor not to speak of myself or at least very briefly and never, if possible, in praise or justification. I will regard myself as a beggar in the house of God who ought to be submissive to all and to whom all is, is done and given through charity. And I will always think that I have too much. St. Philip Neri 
if he heard that anyone had committed a serious crime, would say, thank God that I have not done worse. He also used to say, the wound in Christ's side is large, but if God did not guard me, I would make it larger. Toward the end of his life, when he was ill, he said, Lord, if I recover, so far as I am concerned, I shall do more evil than ever, because I have promised so many times before to change my life and have not kept my word so that I despair of myself. St. Francis de Sales said, the highest degree of humility is not only to acknowledge willingly our own abjection, lowliness, but to love it and to take delight in it. And this not from meanness of soul or cowardice of heart, but from a desire to exalt as we ought the divine majesty and to prefer others far before ourselves. The Book of Wisdom says the just man is the first accuser of himself. St. Albert the Great said that he who will acquire humility ought to plant the root of it in his heart, that is, he ought to make it his study to find out his own weakness and misery and to comprehend not only how weak and miserable he is, but to what a degree weakness of weakness he would be reduced if God had not shielded him from the occasions of sin and helped him in temptations. And St. Francis of Assisi said, I am fully convinced that had the greatest sinner received the same favors that I have, he would have made better use of them than I have done. And on the contrary, I firmly believe that if God should withdraw his hand from me for even one moment, I would fall into the most extravagant enormities in the world and be the worst of men. Therefore do I look upon myself as the greatest and most ungrateful of all sinners. Now these people are saints. They are saints because they understand their own lowliness and they speak about their own lowliness without the slightest hesitation. Now we should garner the following lessons from these saints concerning humility. First, humility is the condition of all other virtue. That is to say, that there can be no true virtue, not even natural virtue, if the virtuous acts are done out of a motive of pride. For a virtuous act must be good in all of its aspects in order to be truly virtuous. Hence, even to give a great amount of money to the poor for the sake of obtaining the praise of others would be a sin. Because the work 
although good in itself, if we isolate the alleviation of the sufferings of the poor, that's a wonderful thing. But the work as a moral act becomes bad because of the corrupting motive of pride. <clears throat> pride and vanity, therefore, become the ruination of our good deeds. Or at least they can diminish them. Diminish the virtue of them, the order of them, and therefore diminish the merit of them in the case where the pride and vanity is only venial. This is often the case of people who live good lives and who accomplish everyday virtuous acts. They diminish, nonetheless, the good and the merit of these acts to the extent that they are tainted with vanity. A virtuous act without any pride or vanity is like 24 carat gold. But the more you add the vanity and the pride in the virtuous act, the gold content goes down. And if you completely corrupt the act with pride, it is nothing more than a piece of tin. The second lesson from these saints is, as St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, the way of humility is humiliation. When we pray to overcome our pride, as we should do every day, God will visit us with humiliations of all kinds. These humiliations come to us like acid upon metal. When poured upon our pride, our pride hisses and bubbles up as these humiliations eat away at it. And that's good. That's good when the humiliation strikes and it's painful. That's when it's doing good. We would sooner do severe mortification of the senses than to accept humiliation. Why? Because our pride, our love of self, our self-esteem, our vanity are far more precious to us than our food or any other pleasure. We see from the saints that not only should these humiliations be bravely endured, but actually welcomed, sought. This is the perfection of humility that we rejoice in humiliation. And why do the saints so rejoice? Not because humiliation is fun in itself or something that is desirable in itself. It is desirable for something else. And that something else is this, these saints are so filled with a knowledge of the majesty of God that they rejoice in perceiving their own lowliness because it is the truth. Standing next to the enormity of the majesty of God, 
they see themselves as very, very tiny. As when you stand next to a great mountain or a great skyscraper, you perceive your own lowliness. So they are constantly aware of the majesty and the glory of God. And therefore, lowliness is truth. They perceive the truth. And you rejoice in any truth that you may discover. Our lowliness is as true as God's majesty is true. And for this, they rejoice in discovering their own lowliness. They rejoice in the truth. St. Teresa said, humility is truth. Truth about what we are. They furthermore understand, by the gifts of the Holy Ghost, the value of the Holy Cross in the order of salvation. They see these humiliations as participations in the cross of Christ, which they deeply desire to have, which they desire, that is to say, they desire to participate in the cross of Christ out of love for our Lord. Sometimes we get the impression that our holy faith is a type of exchange between God and us. That we go to Mass and we say rosaries and we do other good things and God is expected to hand us back a nice life in this world. And therefore when things go wrong, if a child should suffer or die, or other things terrible happen to us, we say, how could God do this to us? I'm a faithful Catholic, I say my prayers. You don't understand the Holy Cross. You don't understand the path of salvation. It is written all through the Gospel. You don't understand the most fundamental aspect of our faith. This is not a place of showering worldly gifts upon you. This is a place of taking up your cross and following Christ and sanctifying your soul thereby. The saints understand this. This is the wisdom of the saints. And part of that carrying of the cross is humiliation. And it is one of the most difficult crosses to bear because pride is so dear and so intimate to our souls which are corrupted to a great extent by original sin and corrupted by the many actual sins of pride and vanity that we have committed. The third lesson that we must learn today is that it is necessary to understand that the good that we do is principally from God's grace. You see St. Francis of Assisi, if it weren't for the grace of God, I would be the most hard sinner in the world. And the other saints said similar things. That they understood how much God is holding them up sustaining them in grace that the good that they have is all from God. Of ourselves, we are weak and inconstant. And if given the opportunity, we would fall into the most depraved vices. We should thank God, therefore, not only for the interior graces by which he sustains us, but also for the many exterior graces which have been willed by God for us from all eternity. 
where I was born, into what family and circumstances was I born, the parents that I had, the priests and religious that I had, instructing me and do now have, the catechism which I received, the discipline which I received from my parents and from priests and nuns and so forth, the sermons which I hear, these are all external graces. And they sustain you together with the interior graces that God gives you. They sustain you. These exterior graces contribute a great deal to our eternal salvation and, as I said, are willed by God for that precise purpose. <clears throat> Where would we be without these graces? These saints would say that they would be the worst of sinners without these graces of humility, these graces of instruction. Think of the billions of people who do not have these graces, those who have never known the Catholic faith and who never will, who will lead their whole lives in ignorance of the most important aspects of human existence and human salvation, ignorance about the most important things of life, and I'm not talking only about those who are in the jungles of Brazil. I'm talking about those who are educated and rich, ignorant about the most fundamental and important things of life, even though they may have doctorates because of their pride. Think of the hundreds of millions of people who receive the true faith from their parents. Hundreds of millions. And who have lost it because of Vatican II and its reforms. Just as so many people lost it during the Protestant Reformation, raised as good Catholics, and then lost it. And who are now raising their children in the new and false religion, just as those fallen away Catholics did in the Protestant Reformation, raised their children as good Protestants. Thank God for the graces that you have. The fourth lesson from the saints is that we should study our own faults. We should know ourselves, as St. Augustine says. We should stare at our many past sins, come before the Blessed Sacrament and stare at our many past sins as God stares at them. Think of how many sins you commit in one day. Multiply that by 365. Multiply that by your age, minus seven years for the time when you didn't know what you were doing. Listen to your own confessions. How you confess over and over again the same sins. You should find in that repetition of sin not only your own faults, your own tendencies to sin, but also your own inconstancy and weakness. Find the extent of your own self-love and the frailty of your love of God. 
The Gospel of today's Mass instructs us to take the last place at table. Pray to God that He send you the grace of humility and the concomitant humiliations so that you gain, if in a small way, the perfection of humility which we found in these sayings of the saints today. And that we be attracted to the last place in all things, not out of a petty modesty, but in the way that a stone is pulled to the ground by gravity, convinced by the grace of God through, through our weakness and tendency to sin that we are the worst of all men. St. Paul said, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you are enjoying this episode. We would like to remind you that you are listening to In Veritate on member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Matthew Arthur, presenting sermons by Bishop Sanborn on humility and savagery. And now for the continuation of In Veritate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. In the epistle of today's Mass, St. Paul urges us against the works of the flesh, and warns us of the enmity, that is the struggle, which exists between the spirit and the flesh. He then enumerates the fruits of each in the soul. This war between the spirit and the flesh in the soul is but a microcosm of the war between God and the devil. The devil hates God and desires with a fearful determination to destroy what is of God. He thus relentlessly tempts men to sin in order to build up his own kingdom, which is the city of man, and this, the kingdom of the devil. God, on the other hand, is obviously not in any way threatened by the power of the devil, but has chosen by his infinite wisdom to have man prove his love for him by doing battle for, with the devil. God gives each man the sufficient grace to save his soul. He gives him the necessary equipment and training to fight with the devil. If a man should fail, it is not because God did not give him the means to win, but because the man chose to lose to the devil through his own fault. God, says St. Paul, does not permit us to be tempted beyond our strength, but wishes to draw from temptation issue that is a proof of the love of God in a man's soul. The equipment which we receive from God is the state of sanctifying grace and the help of actual grace, as well as the inspirations of the Holy Ghost, which we call the gifts of the Holy Ghost. These are the weapons which we must use against the handicaps which we inherit through original sin. 
handicaps which favor the temptations provided by the devil. When the waters of baptism, therefore, are made to flow upon the head of the child, the battle begins. It is like a great race or tug of war, a duel to the death, the outcome of which will last for all eternity. The struggle between spirit and flesh, between grace and nature, between heaven and hell, is the greatest struggle of man, and there is not a single deliberate act which he will perform in which this struggle is not present, in which the stakes of eternal life and eternal death are not in the balance. When we say that there is a struggle between the spirit and the flesh, between grace and nature, we must understand that flesh and nature should not be un understood here as what God made. For God made flesh and he made nature, and inasmuch as he made them, they are perfect. Instead, we are speaking about flesh and nature as stained and wounded by original sin and which thus tend toward the commission of evil. Flesh and nature, therefore, in this sense, stand for the effects of original sin on flesh and nature. It should also be understood that despite the effects of original sin in our flesh and nature, we are nevertheless always masters of ourselves and that we always retain the use of free will and that we can, by the help of God, persevere in virtue. The Protestant heresy would have us believe <clears throat> that we are helpless victims of these tendency to sin as a result of original sin and that we cannot overcome them and that we will inevitably sin. The remedy for sinning, says Martin Luther, is simply to believe in Christ as your Savior. The Catholic doctrine, in contrast, is that we retain the use of free will and that we can overcome temptation by the grace of God and that if we sin, we are responsible before God for our sins and we are worthy of damnation. Nature, wounded by original sin, seeks to make of us a savage. That is, if we were to follow all of the instincts of our fallen nature, our lives would be exactly like those of the savages. In fact, human beings became savages not because they were cavemen, but because they fell from grace and cut off from the gospel in the remote parts of the world became the prey of the devil, began to worship the devil, and abandon themselves to the grossest forms of immorality. Through lust, the fallen flesh leads us to fornication, uncleanness, immodesty, and luxury, St. Paul says in his epistle. And luxury here means lust. The ultimate outcome of lust is to turn a, a man into a creature of impurity whereby he seeks pleasures of lust 
with such relentless drive that all barriers and inhibitions are broken down and in the end he becomes not even ashamed to act in a disgusting and unnatural manner, worse than the animals. Through pride, he is led to trust excessively in his own judgment, thereby placing an obstacle to the humble virtue of faith. This pride leads him to fashion his own gods after his own perceived virtues, his own likes and dislikes, as the ancient Greeks and Romans did. Thus, idolatry and superstition are the inevitable result. And because pride leads to curiosity, fallen man also has a penchant for the occult, that is, the worship of the devil in some form or other, with the will to obtain from the devil his powers and favors in the quest of money and pleasure. Witchcraft and devil worship is the result, and St. Paul makes mention of these, a vice that is common to all savages. It is the original vice of man, for Eve's interest in the snake's promises was one of curiosity, which led to a disbelief in God and a belief in the devil. He deceived her into thinking that God was the deceiver and that he, the devil, was the spirit of truth exposing the lie of God. Pride also leads to discord and dissensions, quarrels and divisions of which St. Paul speaks. Anyone familiar with savages knows that hatred, revenge and murder are the order of the day and that forgiveness, forbearance and kindness are unknown virtues. Laziness leads to a complete breakdown of order in the life of the savage. Through this vice, which is fed by self-love, he prefers to pick a fruit off the tree rather than till the soil. Savages roam from place to place in search of an easier life, and they are content to live in poverty and filth. The Jesuit priests commented that in the North American Indians, they found that they lived in indescribable filth, sleeping in their own excrement. When life becomes even too dirty for the savage, he burns down his village and moves on to another place. As part of their general dissipation and as a means of alleviating the misery of their poverty, the savage is given to drunkenness, the use of narcotics and revelries, that is, immoderate entertainments, gambling, carousing, the frequenting of bars and similar things. As a result of all of this laziness, drunkenness and gluttony, he becomes hardened in his savage way of life, becomes incapable of working, makes his vices a custom and becomes a savage the ultimate end of the effects of original sin. Through avarice, sinful nature inclines us to love excessively the things of the world, to envy others for what they have and we do not have, and even to hate them for it and even to kill for it. 
the avaricious cover themselves with gaudy jewelry and makeup. We are amused at times to see pictures in the National Geographic of natives in strange makeup and costumes, but the principle is no different from the woman in our civilized society who has her face completely painted or adorns herself with jewelry and weird fashions to the point of being absurd and even pitiable. Or consider the modern custom of tattoos in which people paint themselves permanently with ugly images on their bodies. How God must be saddened to see his creature so mutilated by the tattoo. This avarice leads to cold-heartedness, faithlessness, selfishness, and to enmities, jealousies, and even wars. Now, we tend to think of savages as belonging to the remote parts of the world or to different times. But we should understand that savagery is the term toward which sin will take us if we do not war against it. Already our society, having cut itself off from the grace of God, has descended into savagery with regard to the cold-hearted murder of unborn children. Children that can be seen in the womb now through scientific methods. A society that has a, an obsession with lust to the point that one would say that the planet is sex-crazed, that hardly a single piece of entertainment can be produced without lust. The only, and as well, this is a society which in the 20th century, and even our own century, has produced enmity and warfare that is unprecedented in the history of mankind. The only characteristic of savages which is lacking to modern man is poverty and filth. And these are lacking only because modern man is so attached to money and comfort that his avarice and lust make up for his laziness. But modern civilizations have unleashed very many effects of original sin to an extreme point of which St. Paul speaks today. Extermination, mass murder. Think of the senseless shootings, which is so characteristic of our modern life now that we hardly pay attention to them anymore. Just another shooting. But that is the, an act of a savage. Why are these things happening? People are aghast, saying, how could anybody do such a thing? But look at what, what society is behind these acts. It's a society that blesses the murder of babies and thus numbs any inhibition toward the taking of an innocent human life. It's legal to kill babies in this society. Killing innocent babies. It's a society 
that is filled with rock music with all of its satanic culture. Look at the, the faces of those people. Look at all of their symbols. And society has been on a steady diet of this since the 1960s. And the young people have grown up with this evil, wicked, weird culture. Consider the fact that there is a relish of violence in their entertainments. And I'm not talking about westerns where there are showdowns on, on Main Street. I'm talking about entertainment in the form of movies and television and, and uh, video games in which there is a relish of bloodshed. There is a joy in seeing people mauled, cut up, bleeding. That is sick. And when you attach it to all of the other things, it, it produces the effect of someone who is totally uninhibited to see the shedding of blood for fun or for revenge because he lost his job or he doesn't like somebody. He's in a bad mood. Godlessness, the godlessness of society, the broken homes which cause all sorts of confusion in the mind of children, make them depressed, make them angry because their parents have not delivered on what they were meant to do. All of these things come together into the, those young people, especially, who do those senseless shootings. And it's a, an effect of original sin in us and in our society, and we should not be surprised by it in any way. Those things were unheard of before the 1960s. The first incidence was in the late 1960s. Somebody went up to the tower of the University of Texas in Austin and started shooting people in the late 1960s. There was no incident of that before in the history of our country or even in Europe. It is an effect of the savagery of our society, which is the effect of, the, of original sin and the abandonment of mortification of the effects of original sin. The spiritual lesson that we must learn today is that we must war against the flesh and not follow the instincts of our flesh. This is the first lesson of the spiritual life. It is impossible to approach God unless we first remove the obstacles between ourselves and God, these obstacles being the effects of fallen flesh and nature, which have, we have permitted to overtake our soul. Our each action, therefore, must be carefully examined by supernatural prudence. We must read spiritual books especially sacred scripture and the lives of the saints, in order to familiarize ourselves with the wisdom of God, to learn what is of the Holy Ghost, and to shun what is of the devil. It is a prevalent error, furthermore, that human beings have no effects of original sin in them. That is the modern naturalism. 
and that he should be therefore given free reign to follow his instincts. We see this in the manner in which the modern world raises its children. They are permitted to say and to think and to do whatever they wish, are subject to no discipline, and become in the process pesty and burdensome little beings. We don't like to be in their presence. They have lost all their attractiveness and innocence as little children. All which gives joy to adults when they see them, they have lost all of that. And adults naturally, even their own parents, don't like to be around them. You can see it when you see them in public. This is the effect of original sin. That is, that there is no discipline to do because it is the parent who, much, who must take away the obstacles of original sin. The child is incapable of it. He knows no better. The parent, through discipline, must remove those obstacles. Otherwise, you breed your child to be a savage. You breed all of these evil instincts in him until he grows up and makes a society of lust, of avarice, of filth, selfishness, godlessness, liberalism, and materialism. That's exactly what we have. The adults today were the children of the 60s. And look at what they have given us as a society. The Catholic truth, on the other hand, is that we have within ourselves the formidable enemy of the effects of original sin, the dogged foe of our spiritual lives against which we must struggle every day by the grace of God. The sign of the true follower of Christ is the mortification of the flesh. For St. Paul says, and they that are Christ's have crucified their flesh with the vices and concupiscences. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for joining us on In Veritate. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that In Veritate is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray for the restoration i am matthew arthur may god bless you this program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of novus ordo watch See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.